listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Kirk, you got me on a, on a cross-country kick. You were talking about how you've been on your assault bike watching all the old cross-country winners of high school, the high school national champs, and then seeing what they became after the fact. Yep. Yep. So I, I already watched nationals this year, and then because of watching cross a little extra, it starts popping up some extras. And I don't know if you watch this or not, but every year there is the USATF Club Cross-Country Nationals. You ever watch Club Nets? Not until this year when I saw Cole Hawker won, and then I got curious, but not before this year. Yeah. Well, every year it's every year it's a big deal, and I, I, I've known some people. John DeWitt went out and ran it with, uh, who would that have been? I don't know. It wasn't Badgerlands. No. Performance Running Outfitters might have put a team together. I don't know. It doesn't matter. We, we've known people who've gone out there, and it's just a team cross-country race, but from time to time, studs show up. Well, Cole Hawker went out and won it this year. He just changed. He just changed teams this year. Is he on Boston Track Club now? Or, I don't know. Is Maybe he? he's not. It doesn't matter. Point is, he won it, and I, I started looking at the video. I have never been more disappointed by a cross-country race in my entire life. Ever. Because of the production quality? Because all it was was like stationary cameras watching droves of runners walk run by they didn't follow anybody or was it just because it was like nobody showed up because of the course now i get really sick and tired of people saying oh that's not cross country that's not real cross country because there is no such thing as real cross country it's just not on a track and it's not on roads that's really the only requirement in my mind but this one basically was on a gravel 1200 meter loop that they ran like nine times and that was it. Well, do you disapprove of the European style cross country where they may do four loops, five loops, which they just did at the Euro Champs, or does it feel very different? And I will say the Euro Champs have great hills up, down, some nasty terrain. It's a different vibe, but go ahead. I don't disagree with it or agree with it. I think it's just different. Uh, best cross country race I ever ran in my life was at your course, which is what, two and three quarter loops? Lake Breeze. Basically a three-lap cross-country race. On a golf course, but flat, flat as a pancake. Yeah, I. it, it was more about the laps. I liked it. It felt like track. Get out, mm-hmm. get tough, close. That's, that, that worked well for my mind. So I guess I don't mind loops. It's the fact that the cross-country national champs was on a gravel 1,200-meter loop. It was essentially a 1,200-meter cinder track for cross-country championships. And it was so bizarre. I thought, as I watched it, they were going to go out, do an opening loop as like a preamble, let the crowd see everything, and then disappear back into the woods. And then they were talking that this is multiple loops here. And I thought, well, it's 1,200-meter gravel. Then they're going to go out and do a mile, come back out, just for viewing's sake. No, they never left gravel, ever, for the entire cross-country championship race. And I was... I was really, <laughs> it sounded like a way too invested. I was, I was almost sad watching it. I turned it off. I didn't watch the finish. I didn't see Cole win. Mm. It was a road race. Yeah. I thought it was funny 
Was it? They had another big cross country meet recently, national meet, where a lot of guys showed up to. What meet was that? It was an invitational down in Texas. Sound was it? Sound. Yeah, they they were basically putting together like this was like the fir- like first like time they really got together. This they want to make it an annual thing, and it has been. But this year they really gathered a a race group. But like I mean, all the studs were there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then on the men's side, you saw like all the studs had had come in collegiate and professionals. But anyways, they had uh, they had like two hay bales. They just like threw in the middle of the course. I mm-hmm. believe like two like hay bales that were well how tall is a hay bale 12 inches 18 inches and that was a big talking point like well the hay bales are really gonna ruin their rhythm but they could just run around the hay bales which almost everybody did and I <laughs> yeah. just thought it was amusing coming from OCR that it was so extreme these are like little square hay bales not like big round ones you had to crawl over yeah. in like a Spartan race but it was a talking point about uh how gnarly the the course was and what a feature yeah. and I was like those are two 12 inch hay bales I, I found the perspective amusing. Good race to watch, though, by the way. Yeah, yeah, and I watched that one. I thought it was sound running that was the night. There was two of them, that and one other. It doesn't matter what it was. Uh, I think Alicia Munson won it. Uh, she was the one who ran at, at Madison. I didn't watch the was women's a national race. champ. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, anyway, the reason they did this is there was a different course, and a tree was knocked down in a storm the night before. And it was maybe like... 200 meters into the course, a full tree felled across the entire valley. And instead of working around it or saying, all right, that's the obstacle, get over it. And then the regular course is what it is. They just moved it to a gravel loop. And so like 99% of the field wore vapor flies. It was a road race <laughs> for national championships. <laughs> oh my goodness. I didn't see that. But I thought of you in this. The reason I bring all this up wasn't to complain about the race, even though I ended up complaining about it. Uh-huh. I thought of you because... As they're running by, you just hear the sound. And Vaporflies are noisy shoes, as are Alphas. Some of the super shoes are really loud. So you just hear the slap of the foam as they're coming by. And then you start hearing in the distance, clack, 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 clack. And there were a few people in the back half of the pack that didn't have another racing shoe option. Because I don't think they found out until the morning of this was happening. And they had their spikes. And so they ran uh, 1,200 meter gravel loops for nine and a half kilometers in spikes. And one guy came through wearing the old Kennedys. And I thought, that's Kirk's <laughs> shoe right there. And you love that shoe, but can you imagine running 10K on gravel with spikes in in those Kennedys? No. I didn't even run that shoe for 8K cross country. I chose a different shoe how furious you'd be if you showed up with just your cross country spikes and they changed it to a gravel road race. (laughs) It's like, do I wear my trainers? Sure suited Cole Hawker. Well, sure did. Anyone who had happened to have a pair of super shoes along, (laughs) it worked well for fared very well. Yeah. You can't predict something like that happening. I will say that I did watch in my recent, I've talked about this a couple times now, but it's just so fun to go back and watch old high school races. And now knowing the career of a lot of these, uh, people, you know, some of the people that are true pros that have broken through in the last decade, weren't top finishers at the high school level. And then somewhere, but Cole Hawker was Cole Hawker back in high school. And he smoked everybody in the last half mile at cross country yeah. uh, footlocker national champs. And I was like, all right, maybe he can run cross country too. Cause that it's a hilly course for the boys and girls in the high school level. They, they, they give them a legit course, which I like seeing. We forget sometimes 
that the middle distance monsters are also long distance monsters. They just happen to be better at middle distance or they have one skill set that allows them to be successful there. He might be every good as a bit as good at five or 10 K as he is at the mile, but he has an otherworldly kick. And so he stays at the mile, but mm-hmm. he's a stud. I bet a bunch of people who didn't realize this about him when he showed up to club Nats thought it was my day to take down Cole Hawker. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, halfway yeah. through they realized he's not breathing still. <laughs> this, this isn't what I thought. He's not a 1500 meter runner bumping up to cross. He was a state champ cross runner who happens to also be a 331 1500 yep. meter runner. National champ cross runner. National champ, yes. Not just state champ. Yeah. Um okay, well, I'm glad you got that off your chest. I'm sorry you're so upset about such a travesty as far as course design. I'm less upset then I was excited to see our shoes, the shoe above <laughs> me right here, and the shoe that yeah, yeah, may yeah, be your favorite spike of all time. It is. Some guy just tr- – because you can't find those anymore, Kirk. If you wanted to buy them, you couldn't. This is probably his last pair of those shoes, and he just blew them out in one race. There is no – those <laughs> little plastic nubs on the bottom of that spike, they're gone. That race destroyed those shoes. You know what's sad is that I had all the sweet shoes, the Jasaris, the Puma. Oh, the heck were they? They were sweet. Um, the Kennedys, the Ventilis. I had all like some of these like old, now I guess almost vintage, but amazing racing spikes. And in grad school, I was broke. And so I sold them all on eBay for like 50 bucks a pop. And I don't have a single one left. And if I could go back, I would have like, I don't know, sold a kidney or something instead. But... You live, you learn. So that's why I don't have a sweet retro shoe wall like you. And dodgeball, I think they said you had me at blood and semen. Like sometimes. <laughs> yep. Sometimes you just got to sell yourself. Keep those shoes. <laughs> Should have been donating plasma. Um, okay, you want to open with anything else? Otherwise, uh, we got we got an episode for you today, folks. And hey, why don't we address real quick why there was no training Tuesday? Why don't you just make a race excuse for... Our training Tuesday here, why it's not up. Well, it's not up, but it exists. We have it. I said it's upload. It didn't load. I don't know where it went. We recorded it. It's just gone. So we have it. We're just going to release it on Tuesday now. By this, by this point, it's Thursday. This episode we're recording right now comes out tomorrow. So it's just going to show up Tuesday. And instead of taking next week off for the holidays, we accidentally moved it up one week. So our apologies. I suppose I'll take the... I'll take the blame for this, but I'm going to blame the internet. Technology is hard. Anyways, you'll get a training Tuesday next week, which we were going to take off between the holidays. But yeah, just came up, came a week early. And today we got ourselves a little Christmas Q&A, which I think are my favorite episodes to do. I think everybody knows that, but I just really enjoy these because we get angles on certain things that don't cross our brains. And so it makes me rethink things often. And I haven't even looked at what questions we have in here. We don't really, we kind of fire from the hip with these babies. Um, And I've got 16 screenshots. I don't know how many you're holding in the chamber, but uh, we probably have some good ones in here like like usual. 14. 14 screenshots here. Wow. I'm sure we have some doubles. Yeah, probably. One thing I've realized about Q&As other than the fact that we both really enjoy doing them is that it gives me the best pulse on the community, the comments, the messages we get, they're great, but the actual questions we get 
tell us what people are thinking about and how they're understanding the material and where they're at in their journey. And there's generally themes throughout these, and I'm sure the theme is going to come out today, whatever that turns out to be. But I like it. It gives me an idea of what people need and what they currently have, what's going on. It's a good pulse. Yeah, we got an interesting question for the first one right away, if you want to dive into things. You have 16, I have 14, so if you start and finish, perfect. Woo! Okay. Well, there's going to be doubles. We know how this works. We both have some of the same screenshots. This is an email from back in October, October 23rd. So it must have been around then that we did our last Q&A. So we're probably two months since our last one. Um, this is from Beth Bethy K. Email. You know when they email you a question, they're serious. Yeah. You know what I mean? That takes some effort to find us, my personal email. Or they don't have Instagram. Also true. Uh, hey, y'all. Love listening to your informative podcast. I have a question that I've not heard y'all talk about before. Do you have any ideas as to why I end up with headaches, often even migraines, after a 30-plus minute trail run or race? My doctor said he thinks I'm overheating. The chiropractor thinks the vertebrae are getting compressed in my neck, causing the headaches. Neither neither hold true all the time. I can run on in the cold or on a shaded trail and barely sweat and still get them. I can get an adjustment after a race and my headaches don't go away. I'm at a loss, but it's starting to happen on every single trail run now. Three days of migraines for every run is becoming really miserable. I'm fine doing hit workouts or shorter, super sweaty track days. I can't seem to figure it out. And then she says, for reference, I've been an athlete my whole life, only starting running at seven in 2017 uh, to get to the next obstacle. Anyways, um, we'll stop there. What are your first thoughts on that? <laughs> my first thought is very rarely... Do I receive a question that I have almost no idea where to go with? Usually I can at least BS <laughs> for a while, but the only places I would go with running headaches have been ruled out. Mm-hmm. Generally, it's shorter, spicier work where people are holding their breath. As I've talked about, I used to get migraines at the end of 800 meter races until I realized I was holding my breath the last 100 meters. I got it in college for a little bit during intense interval sessions. 30 minutes. I'm no doctor, but I play one on this podcast from time to time. 30 minutes isn't long enough to compress your vertebrae a ton. And it's too long to be working so spicy that you would hold your breath and not realize it. So the only thing I can think of outside of something seriously wrong with you is that it's something nutritionally. Hmm. You care to elaborate on that? No, I don't know. <laughs> like I'm stumped. I hope you have something. Us giving advice on this couldn't be further from our expertise. Like we're yeah. just we're doing our best over here, kind of spinning in the mud. I think with this one, my my first. So here's the thing: when you exercise, when you uh, lift weights, or when you run, often you see a spike in blood pressure. So that is normal response to exercise: elevated blood pressure. My first intuition goes to: what's your blood pressure? Have you noticed an elevation or an increase in your blood pressure recently? And then the spike while you're exercising, whether it's easy or hard, there is still a spike. Is causing some sort of tension headache due to increased blood pressure. And then obviously with your history of migraines, it's just exacerbating from there. So my first curiosity is how's your blood pressure doing? Have you monitored your blood pressure while exercising? Get on the treadmill, run, buy a cuff, they're cheap online. That's where my head first goes is if you've seen the chiropractor, if you've, whatever else uh, the doctor says, 
Uh, I'm sure you've had your blood pressure checked, but that's right where it goes. Uh, the other question would actually be with what you said nutritionally. Like if you are deficient uh, in things like vitamin D and uh, ferritin or iron, like those things can really wreak havoc on you. And so if you're metabolically a little off or cellularly just or nutritionally, sorry, micronutrient standpoint a little off, um, they can do funny things. And, and my first thought goes to right what yours does, Bracken, is like, well, yeah, of course, like you got some sort of tension headache from straining and it's going mm -hmm. up into your head and then it's just going from there. But if you say that's, you know, been covered by the chiropractor, then uh, I, I, have a, I have a hard time going past what I just. Yeah. And you could tension headaches are real thing. Oh, yeah. From time to time, I get it where while I'm wearing headlamps in foggy weather where I'm always trying to strain and see a little bit more and I'm just too yep. tense in the back of my neck and I'm hold and my whole upper body and my whole torso stiffens up but it goes away so rapidly afterwards. So I don't know. Could it be caffeine? Yeah, could it be dehydration? Yeah, but those things unless you're doing something drastically different and you're leading to short intense workouts than you are for longer stuff, I don't have an answer. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. This is where we we refer yeah. you to a specialist. Yeah, and the other thing you got to think about, like, have you changed your medication, your birth control, anti-anxiety or depression medication? Like, things like that, which are just, like, secondary or tertiary, you see, need to start digging one more layer deeper, Bethany. Like, uh, start thinking about those outside-the-box things. Those things that affect you hormonally, mess with chemicals in your brain and body, like, absolutely affect this. And maybe there's nothing. Maybe there is absolutely nothing, but you need to check all those, like, outside boxes because most likely you will find an answer. Um, it just might be left field, something you wouldn't think right away. Yeah. How's that? I, I, that's great. I think you went a few places that I wouldn't have thought to go. And I think it's mm -hmm. as good as we can do, but I think headaches are one of the most confounding medical issues that people can run into because they're nearly impossible to diagnose. If the low hanging fruit doesn't lead you right to it, anything can be right. causing it. They're almost impossible if they're not a normal cause to fix and sometimes they just go away there's an athlete i work with right now matt duhan who is dealing with debilitating migraines out of nowhere hmm. and er urgent care full panel everything brain scans you know what they found out not really anything he's fine he's healthy he's in good shape and try try cutting out caffeine Try, if you feel it coming on, get away from fluorescent lights. Like my mom, for example, it's fluorescent lights. That's the only thing. Now, that's not outside, mm -hmm. but between hormones, between stress, like, so many weird things cause it that it can just drive you up a wall trying to figure it out. And that all leads to more stress. So headaches seem to be one of the most innocent yet destructive things you can run into. Yeah. Um, there's nothing else I thought of uh, there. Hopefully, maybe that leads you down some new path. I'm sure you've been digging the last two months since we have not answered your question for that long. So you got one, Bracken? I do. I'm going to read the intro because okay. this tugs at my heartstrings. Okay. <sighs> I'm old school and I download this podcast to my iPod shuffle. <laughs> I love it. Oh, you talk about not many Nike Kennedys left in existence. There's probably not a lot of iPod shuffles left in existence. No, and those things, water damage, and they're broke in two seconds. So the fact that one's still around and working. Mm. The last one I had was the little square one. Yep. That had a clip on it. 
Yeah. Loved that thing. And the kids now used it as a communicator, like they're a spy or an agent. Sort of FBI <laughs> nice. agent. Pink one, green one, blue one, silver. Uh, silver. Dark. Actually, I think it's space gray, they call it. Classy. All right. Yeah. It's the one that got me in trouble in Tampa. It's the one that I, uh, there was the, uh, that, I, that I got jumped for down in Tampa. I was wearing it on a run, a shakeout before the race, and that was all that I had visible, and they wanted the iPod. Oh, really? I didn't know. I'd never heard this story. You never heard this story? Story for another day. Okay. You got jumped. Somebody stole your iPod. No, they did not. <laughs> they did not get it, Kirk. Kicked them right in the groin. Come on. You got to come correct if you're getting my iPod shuffle. It's <laughs> 128 songs I'm not getting back. Oh, all right. All right. Here, here's the real question. Just listen to the Chris Woolley podcast. Haven't listened to that? Go back and listen. Talk about outside-the-box training. That man gets it. And the chat about running form got me thinking. Having never had a running coach, not having run in school, etc., how do we know if our running form is good or bad or breaking down? An old gentleman at the track. <laughs> Lisa runs into this all the time. She has more old men critique her running than anyone I've ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Old men at the track stop criticizing people's form. An old gentleman at the track recently told me to pick my knees up. Can't you just picture an old timer saying, get those knees up? Uh, How does that help? I often wonder what cues I should be thinking of when I'm about to blow up on an interval set. Should it be pick knees up or anything else? What do you think about hitting that mini wall on an interval or tempo or race when things or target paces are about to fall apart? So good question. So start with the first part. If it makes you feel any better, the fact that you said, well, I didn't grow up running and I didn't I didn't have any coaching. Like nobody in high school or college said one thing about anybody's form, like at RB3 mm-hmm. level. Like nobody's like, Kirk, you should pick up your knees or you should fix your form. So just so you know, like because a lot of other people like ourselves ran at high level in high school and college, it was never talked about one time. Your form was just what it was. Nobody, yeah, he runs a little goofy or he, it was never addressed. Not when I ran anyways. So you're really at no disadvantage from those of us who have a background in running as far as being taught how to run properly. That didn't exist. It really doesn't exist. Maybe at a very high level it does. So um, we're all starting from the same position, which is nobody helped us with it. That's really true. Mm -hmm. This is a side tangent already. All tangents are not the main course, but Mm -hmm. people always talk about, oh, I just didn't get to run in college. What did I miss out on? You missed out on developing your engine and you missed out on learning how to race that's it yep we did not get much instruction we ran high school and college i was at the d1 level and the d3 you were at the d3 i never had a single cue on my stride or form as we talked about on our strength training episode at the d1 level our strength training consisted of running in place holding 20 ounce water bottles full of sand like we think of college running as this great illuminating experience And no, it's just an opportunity to build your engine with structure. So you absolutely benefit from doing it, but the technical aspects of the sport really aren't present in most programs. I think most people would be shocked at how poor or mediocre or basic the instruction and coaching is at the high school and college level. There are some exceptions to that, some really good exceptions. At least it was. I think it's getting better. Yeah, I think it's getting better, but... Um, but I mean, we're talking, I was in college 2001 to 2005. 
It's a very different time. I was five to ten. Anyway, it's not this great, like, wealth of knowledge experience. It's a lot of running, which, (laughs) don't get me wrong, super useful and learning how to race multiple different styles and distances, invaluable. But I didn't learn a thing about running in high school or college. Right. Yeah. Not ironic. It really is. And it's sad when you think about it. Mm -hmm. So how do you know if you have good form or not? I recommend every single runner on the planet film themselves running from multiple angles and at multiple paces. At least quarterly. See what's going on. If you have a treadmill, I really recommend having a mirror front side if possible. You have to see yourself run to be able to match up what it feels like what you're doing to what you're actually physically doing. So I think that's step number one. We've all seen ourselves in a race video and thought, who is that? You don't want that. You don't want that feeling. Yeah. I The, the place my head always goes, because we've had a version of this question before, and she's mm-hmm. asking a few more, she or he, she, I assume. Um, he, actually. He. Uh, um, it, is that, here's all you really need to know. Like, nobody rarely, like, you look at Jakob Ingebrigtsen run, and he's got a little bit of a forward lean. His butt sticks out a little bit he he's running next to guys who have these like longer more flowy strides that are picking their knees up higher and a pair appear to be more fluid but when it's time to go Jakob Ingebrigtsen makes him look like a bunch of babies and he smokes them and when you look at him sure he's if there's different versions of efficiency for how you're built so there's no mm-hmm. one right way to run is what I'm getting at the tendency people have, they have two tendencies when they get tired, and that is to kick their head back and like look like the wind's blowing their head off and like run like that, which is a little less common than the alter- alternative, which is they put their head down and they get really internal and their arms swing in across their body and their short stri- uh, stride shortens, and they just that's when they become like a sloppy mess, right? <laughs> and so as simple as it is, like my one piece of advice Don't worry about what everybody else looks like, what everybody else is doing. Like your body typically falls into its own almost natural version of efficiency. That's just my opinion. And so when you get tired, when I get tired, I get internal. Uh, My stride shortens a little bit. I become less efficient. I just have to remember, and I've said this on the podcast a few times, is to run tall. Just stay upright with your chest, trunk, and head. Don't start looking at the ground right in front of your feet. Just stay upright. And I've used this cue before, and the number of times people have reached out to me about it, saying they've used it too, is mind-blowing because I think it's a stupid cue. But you imagine, and you know what I'm going to say, Bracken, is you imagine that there is a string attached to your chest, and that that rope or string is pulling you towards something high off in the distance, like a treetop, a building. And just imagine that just pulling through your chest to something high off in the distance, and that will help keep you efficient when you get tired. Um it's the most helpful cue for me. I use it all the time when I get tired still to this day, and it does keep me up. It keeps those knees driving, as the old man told you this, told you that one time. So I don't, I don't even want to dive too much further than this just ramble I gave because mm-hmm. there's so many little cues with stride, but those yeah. are like my overarching sort of thoughts on that question. There are two schools of thought with stride. There is our school of thought, which is you need to find your own best form of biomechanics 
And then there is the Alberto Salazar, Richard Diaz, the form overhaul approach, which is there is an ideal running type and we need to get as close to that as possible. So there's either the prototype that you're trying to hit or there's your form that you need to optimize. And so it does, it almost doesn't matter which camp you're in. Either one's going to have cues you need to focus on, but in our camp, it's personal cues. So Kirk's is that run tall and have that, that rope pulling your chest forward and it works for him. Mine is simply, I need to lean into it. When I start to struggle, I'm the classic I get upright. You get up. That's written more. You do. I've seen it. Sorry. I've seen it yeah. in video, like in West Virginia, uh, North American champs. There was an image of you running like that, but you're, I would say you're more the exception, not the rule of coming back when you get tired. Don't you agree? Yeah. It, it's like, it's like there's a set of reins on me and someone's pulling them back. I can feel myself. Yes, that being, look. Yeah. And, and that's, so my cue is lean into it. If I just get my shoulders, my hips, everything engaged into the forward pressure, it cleans me up. Whereas yours is something different. Everyone's got something different for me. I have to focus on my hands. I've got to make sure I'm getting my feet off the ground. Some people, it is knee drive. Knee lift, I think, is one of the most commonly overused things because if you look at the greatest runners who aren't sprinting, the knees aren't coming up high. The feet are getting up off the ground quickly and over and over and over and over. And maybe the heels come up high, but the knee doesn't have to lift up much. The leg, like the hip doesn't have to be super flexible forward. It has to be flexible in back to open up for most people. But regardless of who you are, you're all going to find that one cue that sticks to you. And I think it starts by watching yourself run over and over and over because we all have this thing that we, we are feeling of when I'm doing this with my arms or my legs, this is what's happening. But unless you see it, you're cueing the wrong thing until you can actually see it and watch it and then make a change and see that change. You can't really enact great change. You have to be able to see it to tie in that mind body connection to actually make the correct change. So yeah, we're both in favor of optimize your current form because we're all put together differently. And most of us are put together slightly incorrectly and that's okay. You just find your best version. So I don't think we answered it, <laughs> but it's a place to start. Yeah. I don't know if we can answer it. Uh, it's funny. Cause you and I have opposite cues, like literal opposite cues. I have to say, get back and get upright. When I start to get tired and you have to say, get forward and start leaning. It's like exactly shows how nuanced and specific to you yeah. that this is. Um, but the whole knee drive thing, um, I mean, sure. It, you understand the concept, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be more efficient. I see some horribly inefficient people with this super high knee drive, but have no follow through. That's also pointless. Most of your power is being derived on the backside of your stride. And that yeah. knee drive, although it might look pretty, doesn't really do much for you. And we're our own worst critics. I mean, it's like nobody looks at themselves even with good form and thinks like, wow, I am beautiful. Like You're going to always <laughs> think that something is flawed, right? Like it's just the yeah. nature of it if you just think about it as well with force production like what can you do more can you move more weight benching or bent over rowing you know it, we generally can push force out better than we can pull force and so even just thinking about lifting your knees up feels taxing whereas driving mm -hmm. off the ground is less taxing pulling your heels back up towards you so you can plunge them towards the ground that's biomechanically makes a little more sense than lifting up off the ground because engaging the lift is 
is much tougher than just pushing. So sometimes even that cue is taxing to people. You can't have anything be taxing when you're running. If the thought of your cue is taxing, it's going to drain you mentally. I agree. Do you notice that we, uh, so Bracken and I have started recording video because we're going to be ramping up our social media game for you guys. Oh yeah. Uh, but Bracken, do you notice now that we're recording video that there's a delay? Yeah, there is a delay. We like where we talk more. over each other now. Frick, we used to be so good at that. Now <laughs> there's a delay with this video quality. It's terrible. Um, should we move to the next one? No, because I think the most important part is actually the second part of this. Oh. What do you think about when hitting that mini wall on an interval, tempo, or race when things are about to fall apart? Because I'm a big believer in not every step you take is equal in a workout. If you're running 12 by 400, the last four help you more than the first eight do. The last mile of three by mile is where you get the biggest benefit from, not the first two. Mm -hmm. And I think that relates Mm -hmm. to stride as well. When you're about to break down, as you fatigue, fatigued reps, when done properly, are way weightier towards improving your efficiency moving forward than fresh reps. Fresh reps are great for building that muscle memory, but fatigued reps, when you do it correctly, that cements that muscle memory. It makes it adaptable. It makes it so that whatever situation you're in, you don't falter. And so the cueing becomes more important the further the workout goes down. I would rather have someone stop a workout short having done all perfect reps than fall apart and flail and thrash and kind of hang on in the workout and cement something bad that you don't want cemented. And it's the last thing you did. It's the last thing your body remembers. Mm. Yeah, I don't even go to queuing early on until it gets to that point because I feel like I fall into what I'm doing pretty naturally. Maybe not everybody does, but yeah, the queuing for me doesn't happen until then. And and if that means like you need to take your hand away from the flames or your foot away from the mm-hmm. flames slightly and so you can stay efficient, I agree with you. Practicing bad reps just facilitates bad reps. And you'd rather avoid that at all costs unless you're in literal die mode in the last 50 <laughs> meters of a race coming home where that's the only option. So yeah. um, I think your advice is good. Watching all these races we've been watching, it's there's a stark contrast between the two types of people that get dropped from a pack. There are the people that get dropped, and the moment they can't keep the pace anymore – their body cannot run a normal stride anymore. Totally. You see them just start to fall apart. And then there are the people that get gapped but are still running well. And part of that is natural. Part of that is the fitness you bring in. But part of that is that person probably doesn't do any crappy reps. When they're hurting in workouts, they probably stay on it and drive well. And instead of doing 10 by 1,000 at 3-minute pace, they might do 7 by 1,000 at 3-minute pace, drop down to 305 and then 310 to keep running perfect, rather than thrash for a 3-flat that sucks and then fall apart. People that fall off the pace and can still keep running hard and well, that's a real, real benefit to bring to a race. Yeah, I agree. And something I could work on too. I mean, nobody's perfect, but mine certainly goes to crap at times. And sometimes there's a point in no return. <laughs> I'm the poster child for I'm either running well or I'm blowing up. I do not have an in-between. I need to work on that. Did you want to add anything more to that one? Now I'm satisfied, Kirk. I'm super happy you're satisfied. Uh, this is from Scott Hess via email as well. Hey, guys. I'm newer to your podcast and to the running world, but have been enjoying both a lot. I've listened to many of your episodes and was wondering if you could talk about some specific weightlifting 
body weight exercises to do that are targeted towards runners. In my home gym, I have a treadmill, rower, adjustable dumbbells, and a pull-up bar. Thought it would be a topic that would make a good Q&A. I know you've talked about it, but if you could only have a basic setup, adjustable dumbbells, and a squat rack would be on top of the list. I just find myself lost in the vastity of different exercises you can do with dumbbells and would like your take on what would be the most effective basics for a runner who is not specifically training for an event or race, but just fitness and building my engine day in and day out. Thanks. Love the show. Scott. Well, you could send Scott right back to an episode we did two weeks ago, which was like non-traditional strength training for runners. I think everything we say in that, which I'm hoping you listen to, Scott, probably makes you feel at ease with the general vibe of your question. Yeah, it makes you less concerned about what you end up choosing because it's all going to work. It's just why you do it. But specific exercises. <sighs> I think it's tougher to say specific exercises when you go body weight because the only way to, not the only way, one of the only ways to get specific improvements with low weight or body weight is to do really high reps. And that often does not work well with also doing running. So I think I would say if I only had dumbbells, I would do Romanian deadlift. That is where you elevate your back leg and target your front leg and your, in your glutes. And basically you do lunges or squats in that position just power off the ground and that ensures that both legs can pull their weight in your stride if you have weaknesses a romanian deadlift now why am i saying romanian deadlift bulgarian split squat goodness kirk <laughs> okay i was a little confused there so anyways let me start over bulgarian split squat you elevate your back leg and you basically single leg squat or I was confused for a second or lunge yeah i, I would be too <laughs> um bulgarian split squat look it up it's very simple it's like single leg squats but your back legs elevated when you isolate a side like that you can't fake it if you're weak you instantly start leaning and rocking to a side and wobbling your way up and down you fix that side, you fix the other side, you get them both strong. Now your stride is more of a metronome and it's more bulletproof. You're not going to have that one side that's always pulling extra and then you cramp on that side. You're not going to have that one hip that has less mobility and now your stride starts to degrade and then you start to get Achilles issues on the other side. So that would be one. And the other, I think that most runners don't target their calves enough. I would do... Um, uh, some form of calf raises, but I would do it with a slightly bent or very bent leg, whichever one's doing the work. I think that transfers the energy from just up and down, targeting the very top of your calf to getting it more into a running stress position. So bent leg calf raises, both um, eccentric and concentric. Like 45 degrees, I'm envisioning you talking. About. Yeah, somewhere between, yeah, right around 45 is probably good. Yeah, or actually wouldn't that be like, 125 or 135 you understand what i'm getting at yeah yep. or even less start with a slight bend until you feel the stress change yeah so those would be the two i'd point you at to start with lightweight well i think the main theme here is you're telling him not to forget about his lower body because that's exactly where you went first yeah. and so single leg lower body movements must be a part of your routine i always think okay i'm gonna each week i, may, I need to make sure i push with my upper body and pull with my upper body and I need to push with my lower body and pull with my lower body. And I figure if I can figure out a way to do all four of those things, push, pull, upper, and lower, then I'm at, I'm getting, uh, I'm rounding everything out, you know, right? I'm making sure that not much goes missed. And so that can mean something as simple as pull-ups and push-ups. 
can mean something as simple as bent over dumbbell rows and bench press, uh, overhead push press, shoulder press, any of those things. And then for the lower, exactly what Bracken said, Bulgarian split squats, walking lunges, box step ups. Those would all what I classify as push mm-hmm. motions for the lower and then pull motion on the other half, single leg Romanian deadlifts. Um, there we are. Yeah, there you go. You can do you can do just simple dumbbell deadlifts, um, things like that. Sometimes I'll prescribe like an elevated glute bridge, which is really a push motion, but I prescribe mm-hmm. it on pull days to to get that tertiary stuff in there. Um, that sort of stuff. Just think like, how am I pushing and pulling with both my upper and lower every week? Done. Yeah. I mean, if you want to simplify it, that's how simple I break it down. Yeah, I like that. And I think for upper body, this is going to sound weird being someone who loves lifting recommends everyone lifts and does OCR and hybrid events. I think upper body lifting is almost useless to performance as a runner. However, preventative care helps performance. And so it's not useless, but numbers don't matter. Size doesn't matter. You just want to be healthy. And I think one of the biggest issues that runners have is they age poorly. We've talked about this before, but think of any, any lifelong runner or cyclist, you know, They all have that rounded shoulder, sunken chest look, and that's just years of really working in only one plane of movement, and you start to lose that back muscle and anything that pulls you back. So for upper body, I almost don't lift at all for performance of running. It would be more preventative Mm -hmm. of degradation of form prevention of degradation of form so a push and a pull if you're pushing and pulling like kirk said you're not going to ever turn into that hunched over stooped rounded really emaciated looking runner you're gonna you're gonna be more resistant to everything but kirk you hear this all the time what's the best upper body lift to get better at running i can never come up with one i can never come up with anything that i could prove would make you a better runner because even though you drive with your arms when you're sprinting you drive such little power and efficiency from your arms at threshold or below that I just can't come mm-hmm. up with an exercise that's definitively going to make you better. Moving your arms is almost just a cue for your legs to be doing what they need to be doing properly. That's all they're really there for. It's rhythm and balance. It's rhythm and balance. Yep. hundred percent until you start really driving. I've been told more than once that it looked like I was running with my arms towards the end of a race. Like you run yep. with your arms which is what helped me kick those are races in which I pound home and I, I win. Right. And, and yep. I think there's some truth to that, but as far as efficiency goes, there's rare times where, yeah, I think somehow upper body strength does translate whatever it may be. Um, but it, you're right. It only happens at those really high intensity paces, like your mile pacing, whatever that would be for you and below like mile race pace and below, I think those arms start coming into play. But other than that, not as much. They help with gear changing and acceleration. Mm-hmm. I've said this before, but and you have to be careful. Anyone says, I read a study once, but there was a study done on efficiency of runners and they had them hooked up to the oxygen mask. They were taking all your readings and they're running on a treadmill doing different things. And one of them was they tied their hands behind their back. And the range of efficiency dropped. The lowest average was like a 3% reduction in efficiency. And I think most people were between 5 and 8% reduction in efficiency. Now, anytime you hear someone talk about efficiency as a runner, you take it with a grain of salt because what does efficiency really mean? Whenever they test efficiency, like for the breaking two project for Nike, uh, the most efficient runners DNF'd. They couldn't hold the pace for long enough. It doesn't matter how efficient you are if you just can't 
hold the pace and you can't right. put the work out. Right. But what it showed is that in terms of purely the lab testing portion of efficiency, the arms were the least important component to what they were doing. So if you lose less than 10% efficiency when your arms, is there really a ton of benefit you can get from driving them more at easy paces for most people? Yeah. No. Yeah. I'm a, I've spoken my piece on that one. We could keep going for perpetuity, but um, I'd say go back and listen to that episode we did what, two weeks ago or something. I think that'll put your mind at ease as well. Yeah. No, that's good. All right. What are your thoughts on the ability and usefulness of trying to quantify one's aerobic base? It's a term that gets thrown around an awful lot. That's the truth. It really does. But how do we put some meat on its bones? Do you have any thoughts on decoupling, in quotes, decoupling runs to measure the difference between pace or heart rate at the front versus the back? Back end of blocks of a target race time distance? Do you have any other tools, ideas on the subject? Thanks and keep up the good work. I really like this because aerobic base gets thrown around so much and it's almost like how people use the word tempo. Mm-hmm. What does aerobic base mean? How do you how do you quantify base? Uh, this is from I don't know it's a, a screen name, A G G I L E S S Agilis 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 San Diego Joey <laughs> San Diego Joey yeah San Diego Joey. Um, well, I can take a stab at this one first um, with some tangibles actually. Do it. Um, Okay. Well, it's a tough one. It it is a tough one. And will there ever truly be an answer for you? I don't I don't know. I don't know if you'll definitively have an answer for me. What I typically do every once in a while, and when we're talking aerobic, obviously that can be interpreted a lot of ways. But for me I I, I check two things. I I check pacing at lactate threshold and I check both heart rate at certain pacing on recovery runs as well as pick a pacing for a recovery run and see what my heart rate does. For example, <laughs> I will go out and say, I'm going to run seven minute pace for my recovery run, which is very much in my realm for a recovery run. I just see what my heart rate does. It's seven minute pace, do or die. No problem. I see what does my heart rate do? And then maybe six months later, I'll do it again and say, oh, well, seven minute pace, my heart rate was two beats per minute lower at the same pacing. That would be a measure of improved aerobic efficiency or base, if you want to call it that. At the same time, I might go out and say, okay, I'm going to peg my heart rate circa day 135. I'm going to just make sure it stays real close and I'm going to see what pace that gives me, right? Those would be tests to just see like what your aerobic baseline, I call the baseline, (laughs) would be. Um, the same thing goes if you have an idea of your lactate threshold. You just go run. You peg it if you can, and you see what pace it gives you. Or vice versa. You run what you believe is your threat lactate threshold pacing, which technically isn't uh, doesn't make that's not a term that shouldn't be. But roughly, oh, I'm roughly 550 pace at my lactate threshold. Go run 550 pace. See what your heart rate does. And you can compare metrics that way just by saying, oh, my heart rate was lower at this pace, or my pacing was faster at this heart rate, which can be an assurance. At the same time. When I'm in a big training block, my recovery run heart rate might be elevated one day, even though my fitness is fantastic, but it's because of fatigue. And so like, it's like very cloudy. And I understand why you don't understand and like why you, why you need clarification here because it deserves it. But those would be the tangibles, um, that, uh, come to mind first for me. And I don't even know if this is what they're asking. 
but it's yeah the first thing I thought of. Well, I guess let's start with like what is aerobic base? Base is generally looked at as how much time can you spend getting better at easy running before you start adding in harder running. So aerobic base, anaerobic base. I mean, there's really just base, the base of your period pyramid. How how much have you built out your ability to just run easily for long chunks of time? So through that, if you want to look at it aerobically, the easiest way to test if you're progressing with your aerobic I mean, really, we're talking aerobic capacity or aerobic threshold is to perform aerobic threshold tests. And that's what Kirk said. You could either do a true test or you try to find your aerobic threshold and you test that every few weeks until it stops improving. And that's probably enough time to spend at that in your base phase or just keep testing out on your easy runs or your long runs. If I think my aerobic threshold is 158, Let's just put it at 145 to 150 and stay in that range and see what happens with my pace. And over time, you're going to see things change. So I really don't think, though, that, I mean, it's coming at it from two different sides. I don't know if it's even the right thing to worry about. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at a well-developed athlete, they don't stay in base phase until they hit the aerobic metrics they want. They stay in base phase until they hit the volume metrics they want. The purpose of their base phase is to build up their volume to a level that they can safely handle before they move to their next stage of training. It's more about being prepared for what's coming next than hitting a certain metric. Now, the more untrained you are, the less you have to worry about hitting a certain volume of training because you know that's going to lead you to a higher peak later on, but it's still kind of the same thing. It's less about maxing out a heart rate metric in aerobic base work than it is about getting to the point where you can consistently handle the work you want to put in, and then you start making the work spicier from time to time. So yeah, you can measure. I think aerobic threshold tests are great, and they take almost no... I mean, they're not pleasant, but they're not a super quality day, so you could do them every other week, no problem, and you could track what's happening. But that leads to issues of its own, which is as you add in more spice your aerobic capacity drops slightly as your anaerobic capacity rises. And so if you put too much emphasis on the metrics of your aerobic capacity, you can get lost in the weeds. So I would actually look at it more as a a volume metric because no one's ever won a race based on how good they can run easy or recover. But you can't win a race without being able to handle a really good amount of easy and recovery runs. So I think it's, it's, it's weeds we don't even need to get lost in personally. And I think we maybe just, I muddied the water worse, Kirk. No, you didn't. You actually set me up for the only point I really care to get across, and that's the fact. Are you, have you done enough base? Or, or where are you at with this? When, you know, when can I feel good about the work I've done? Well, have you been putting money in your base bank account? regularly mm-hmm. recently which just means like really like any sort of running really you could quantify as base if you wanted to yeah so am i continuing to make bank deposits if the answer is yes then you're doing a great job good job just keep running and putting money in the bank cashing those checks just keep putting them in keep putting them in and you're 90 percent of the way there and i'm also going to say what you're asking really doesn't even freaking matter it doesn't matter because as long as your top end metrics are improving who the heck cares who the heck cares? 
Has your 5K time trial gotten better? Have you consistently placed better in obstacle course races? Who gives a shit? Worry about something else. Like, that's just what I think. I don't care what my recovery run metrics are. I don't care if I built enough base. If I'm seeing the pointy end of my spear improving, that means the floor is rising with it. And so all that's good and well, and I like that you're a student of this. Like, we can split Mm -hmm. hairs there, but I really don't care. All I'm going to say is show me your 5K time. (laughs) Like, how did you perform Mm -hmm. in your last race? Um, Have you been making consistent bank deposits for weeks, months, years? If the answer is yes, you should be improving. And nobody goes out there to be like, yeah, well, my recovery run pace is 7.30, so suck it. Like, nobody cares. I don't care. Nancy don't care. So anyways, that's just my thought on it. It's a a harsh way of saying it, but it's also like kind of tongue-in-cheek because we've all been there. Well, right, right. There are certain things you worry about until you get advanced enough to realize it doesn't it doesn't really matter, but that's what you have to worry about when you're in that stage because mm. you're not aware of what comes next. But how many times have we had an athlete we work with or known an athlete who's like, hey, I just feel really strong and fit right now. I know we're in base phase right now, but I'm just feeling great on my runs. And the other day I PR to climb without really going after it. Mm-hmm. That's the feeling you're going for, but it's not necessarily always a metric. When you're just thinking, I can rip off a 90-minute to two-hour run whenever I want, I feel great. Or I can run every day and it's not killing me. And I'm starting to feel like I want to jump in a race or I just feel better. I thought I'd feel slower in this phase, but I'm feeling good. That's the sign that you're you're progressing and that your, in quotes, aerobic base is better is because the work's costing you less. You're more accustomed to it. It's more of a feeling you're targeting and you know it when you get there, but until you felt that once... You're going to be looking for ways to quantify what you need to get out of the work. You're going to be looking for, should I decouple my runs and see what my cardiac drift is and what pace do I need to be keeping at this heart rate? But once you've felt it once, now you realize, I don't care about those other things. When I feel this in training, I know that it's worked. Yep. I agree with that. Anything else? No, it's almost soapboxy of us, but it's needed. Some things you don't know until you've felt it. Yeah, so true. Um, next one, I will go with Alex Montanaro, Montanaro. Okay. Um, Hey guys, I apologize in advance if this is not the right way to send in questions, but I don't use social media and I don't know how else to contact you. So there you go, Bracken. You're right. This human doesn't have social media. Um, it says, I always sort of ran here and there and cycled in the summers, but no serious training blocks until I signed up for a marathon and trained all summer. Now I'm hooked on running and have learned so much from you guys about different ways to train. However, after binge listening to your podcast, you don't seem to mention the benefits of altitude very often, with the exception of Brack and mentioning his time in Colorado. So I hope this next question can provide some interesting discussion. I'm traveling to Ecuador in the next few weeks. I'm going to, on a mountaineering expedition, which will have me regularly above 13,000 feet and about a total of seven days above 16,000 feet. And one summit at 20,000 feet. I was in South America. Let's cut off one sec. Okay, I was in South America. Where? Okay, I was in South America a few years ago, and when I returned, I was able to run at a much lower perceived effort. Due to the acclimatization my body will experience, I know I will be able to train at much higher speeds when I return, at least for a little while before my body adapts back to sea level. How can I incorporate this into my training? What are some things I could do to get the maximum benefits in my training before the acclimatization goes away? And one more question. Do my aerobic and anaerobic systems improve by just being at altitude since my heart rate will be jacked up doing very little work? You guys are awesome. Thank you for everything you do, Lex. Hmm. 
She's right, I guess. We don't talk a ton about the benefits of being at altitude. We talk more about the drawbacks of not being at altitude and trying to race at altitude, mm-hmm. which I suppose kind of, <laughs> if one's true, the other's true. Here's here's the thing about altitude, Kirk. I realize with editing our podcast, I say that phrase a lot. Here's the thing. But here's the thing about altitude. Mm-hmm. And she nailed it there. Yep. You have this real palpable, tangible benefit boost from altitude when you come down from altitude to sea level, but it is short-lived. It does not last forever. And so to really get a benefit from altitude, you have to return to altitude to replenish that work, or you have to live there always. But going up once per year does not help you long-term. It helps you short-term. And so with that in mind, it's not even worth overthinking, in my opinion. Not saying that you are, but uh, it's it's a simple process. When you're up at altitude, enjoy it. Don't overwork, especially 13,000 feet or above. Just live and survive, and your blood is going to get stronger. And then when you come down, enjoy it while it's there, and then as it fades, get on with life. So what you could do is when you come down, maybe you hit a higher frequency of of quality work for a little bit. Or you get more quality long runs in while they feel great. And then as that tapers off, you go back to regular scheduled programming. But it's not really a tool for a long-term benefit unless you replenish it constantly. Like You have to go a couple times a year to do six, eight-week blocks in order to keep that ball going back and forth. I got the benefit. Now I use it in training and racing. Now I get the benefit. Now I use it in training and racing. Otherwise, it's it's short, short-lived. Yeah, you end up right where you started, Lex, unfortunately, yep. which is no better, no worse. You end up right back at square one. You're chasing your tail. Um, you're chasing your tail other than exactly what Bracken outlined, which is come back and go and run your local 5K. Jump into a race in those first few weeks. Set some PRs. Take advantage of what your short-term freedom is now going to be with whatever uh, – acclimating your body is done and it's all going to go away. It's all going to go away. So that's it. Like soak it up, enjoy it. No, it's temporary, but you've earned it. My other question is, I don't know if you're training while you're up there. You didn't, I don't know what you're doing up at 16,000, 13,000 feet. If you're going to be sneaking runs in, or if you're, could you do anything? (sighs) No, I could probably barely sleep at that altitude. So point being is like, you know, like you could come back detrained. Because you're not running while you're there. So potentially, your metrics may be worse because of that. Sure, you've developed more red blood cells and, and those things. But if you don't have run economy anymore because you took two, three, four weeks off, well, then like you're still back at square one. So I don't know. Maybe you are training when you're up there as much as you can. I don't know. But yes, you end up right where you started. So you might as well take advantage of that window of maybe three weeks where you're going to potentially pop some good workouts and races. Exactly what Bracken said. I'm just echoing it. Yeah. Here, here's how I think the easiest way to understand altitude is. Think if you put on a weight vest, put it on right before a race. Let's say you warmed up in a 10-pound weight vest before your run. You take that weight vest off, you do your first couple strides before the race, and you've never felt lighter in your life. And you start the race off and you're effortless. Well, by the time mile one or two comes along, your body doesn't remember that feeling anymore, and it doesn't help you at all. Now, think if you had been born wearing a weight vest every single day. 
right. 10 pounds. By the time you were 10, you're up to 15 pounds. By the time you're 20, you're up to 20 pounds. And you only took it off for race day. Now imagine how the entire race would feel. Even when you were dying, your legs would feel comparatively lighter than anyone else's. That's altitude. If you go and train there for a little bit, you're going to come back and feel different and better. But by the time uh, that fades, there's nothing left beyond it. But if you spend chunks of time or blocks of training with that weight vest on, you'll actually notice the difference in races. And, and that's basically altitude. It's not a perfect analogy, but that's the way it works. Ah, makes sense to me. I like that one. You got one you want to fire off next? Oh, boy. I sure do. Oh, boy. All right. I, I'm going to read one from June. I hope we <laughs> did this, but I don't remember answering this, Kirk. So tell me if we did. Okay. Kirk mentioned in the Las Vegas episode the importance of putting in a sand block before a sand race. But there will be snow on the ground at the time where I want to train for Abu Dhabi. I hope we answer this because if not, the race is already over. I live in Canada and I'm in the same position. How would we be able to address this? So how do you train for sand if you don't have sand but you might have snow? Did we address this? We've talked about this in so many ways and other angles for brief amounts of time. But I don't know if we've ever directly talked about it. Should we take one minute and hit it and then move on to the second question? There's another question in there? Yeah, because we got a new question. I screenshot it and realized there was one before this. I didn't know if we hit. Oh, boy. Um, what, do, you, do you want to take a stab at it? 60 seconds or less, how to get ready for sand running. Sand running is about lifting off the ground and driving your legs and pushing off more than usual. And so you have to, I say sand running is most dependent on having the biggest overall engine possible in multiple modalities and being able to use every square inch of your muscle in your lower body to drive. So more single leg strength work, more sloppy terrain running, more cross training, more compromised running. I think you have to do all of those tool type work as main work for an entire block so that everything can pull its weight in the sand because what sand running does is it takes you to the same place regular running does in about half the time so if you're going to fall apart at mile six in a in a 10 mile race you're going to fall apart at mile three so you're just going to spend more time working harder for less speed so everything has to be able to pick up the slack i think that was under a minute We'd have had to put a timer on it. Good job. I rarely do that. I am always long-winded. Um, well, I go to the fact that when you're running in sand, um, you're going to get this leg burn sensation that you won't always get on on um, unpacked terrain. It's going to require more muscle contraction or more... Um, yeah, like, you know, if you do like a quad extension machine, and it's like the most miserable burn in your quads, like this is just so uncomfortable, right? But you're not pushing against the ground or anything. It's kind of what sand does, like your hamstrings, your glutes, your actually really everything, hip flexors. Um, best way to train for sand, in my opinion, if you don't have access to that is to do most of your work uphill. Um, doing most of your work uphill is going to simulate how those legs kind of go out from underneath you while you're working hard. The burn in the legs happens much faster. And so if I were training for something where I knew I'd be spinning my wheels a bit in the sand, I'd be doing a lot of 15% work. I'd be doing almost all uphill work because it's virtually going to induce the similar feeling into your mm. lower body. I like that. And so you're never getting a free stride. Gravity isn't working for you as easy as it is in flat and packed terrain. So go up, go up, 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 up. And every stride is earned when you train that way, right? 
And I think that would translate to the sand as well as anything if you don't actually have sand to train in. I like it. It's good. That's it. All right. So here's the current question. My girlfriend is prepping for a backyard ultra in May. This is Justin Lalande. Lalande or Lalande? I don't know if it's a silent E at the end. It's Lalande. It's one of my guys. Justin! Oh. She's training for a backyard ultra in May. She's wondering how to best approach training for this type of ultra, and how would you strategize for a lap-based event like this? So, backyard ultra, for those uh, not initiated in this, is an event where it is a short looped course. It's usually 4.8, miles or less. Okay, let's just call it five miles or less. Usually the loops are five miles or less. And you have a certain amount of time to run the loop and loops go off every set amount of time. So let's say it's every hour the loops go off. That's a common style. Then you can get done in 10 minutes or 59 minutes and 59 seconds, but you have to be on the starting line when the next hour starts. So the strategy comes into play. How do you spend your downtime? How do you spend your running time? That kind of thing. So first of all, how do you train for it? Second of all, how do you strategize for it? Yeah, you train and, for it. Sorry, sorry. I, one important part for people who don't know it, this is not a distance-based challenge. It's a time challenge to see how many laps you can do. So it's not like you're doing a 50-mile race. It's you're doing a 6-hour or a 12-hour or a 24-hour. How many laps can you go for? Everybody becomes so miserable that they can no longer continue but one person, and that is the winner. You yeah. could be a day and a half into this, completely sleep-deprived, and you literally just can't function anymore to make the <clears throat> cutoff or the next start line. It's a If you want to really race these, it's an absolutely miserable way to – it's a very enjoyable way to race for 12 hours, like the most enjoyable, and then it quickly <laughs> becomes the most miserable to race after that. Um, <clears throat> well, my answer is going to be you train like any other ultra-athlete. You put in the volume, you expect to have time on feet, um, and you prepare for that amount of impact. Um, So you do on paper, like from a 10,000-foot view, it looks very similar. When you start to zoom in, what you actually need to do is you need to practice that style of training. And it could be, I'm going to go out and run for an hour, take an hour off, run for an hour, take an hour, like do that style of training in your training, and then also include sleep deprivation training, which means you go about your day all day, Da da da. You wake up and then at midnight you go for your first you go for your first run and you do that like just practice how you're gonna feel in a sleep deprived nighttime state. So really, it's volume, 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 and then maybe every four weeks you hit a very specific. And I'm just throwing that out. Um, that's not science. A very specific day of training in which emulates what to expect in the race, which is going to uh, accumulate debt for you. Um, and damage, which is something you're going to be, you know, testing out. Cause you need to know how your body feels after it cools down for 15 minutes in between running every time and where that ends up and what shoes work best and all that. And so, um, not much different from ultra training other than the fact that you need to practice that on and off style. And you should also consider practicing it, uh, at night in, uh, low sleep conditions. That's my blanket advice. I wouldn't say a single word differently. So instead I'm going to just give the concise recap to drive home the point. <laughs> Perfect. You train exactly the same as any other ultra athlete, but your sim days, your longest run days, and your race prep days are race specific. Instead of doing a six hour run, you might do three by two hours, or you might do an overnight run. That's the only difference. The only thing that looks different is maybe some of your strength training, which you could get into, but absolutely how your big 
race prep days look. That's it. What it really comes down to is building up that mindset and the strategy. And your biggest strategy is to remove all potential variables seen and unseen so that you can control them. And your pit crew needs to be a pit crew in the most true definition of that word, like an IndyCar pit crew or a NASCAR pit crew. You need to be able to walk in. They know in advance what's going to happen. And just like the driver, you plop down there, you sit, and they address the car. They take care of everything. You are only there to reply yes, sir, or no, sir. That's it. That's the most important part of ultras of Backyard Ultra, other than the most important, which is your mind. Mind matters more than almost anything in this, which I don't usually believe. Usually talent wins out just as much as mind does. In Backyard Ultras, if your mind is bulletproof and your pit crew knows what they're doing, you're going to be very successful. Yes, sir. Glad you pounded it home. Go back and listen to Justin Hamilton. Um, His first one's a great listen for his personal story. The most recent one with Justin Hamilton we did this year is all about ultras, big vert, and lap-based backyard races. So listen to that one to get an idea for the planning and mindset it takes to do this. It's pure gold. I think that was the most informative podcast we've done for ultra athletes, period. He was so well-prepared. Justin Hamilton, part two, an amazing listen. He even has a checklist, a checklist. He reads down what you need to know. Everything he does, he tells you. Such a good listen. Um, I'm not going to use this person's name in this out of respect. Um, I don't know if they care or not, but I'm just going to err on the side of caution. Um, Hey, quick question. Maybe Q&A. If someone uses running as a replacement for a bad habit like drinking and staying out of jail... How do you go about it if you get hurt in a race and it took you out for a few weeks or a few months? For example, Sunday I did the Virginia Spartan 50K, rolled my ankle halfway through, and I did finish. But now my uh, croissant, I don't know if that's correct, is that if I stop running, I'm worrying about relapsing and going back to drinking. For me, I use running and racing. That is his question. Well, I think... You are qualified to answer this, but I'm going to start with a very uncouth, non-PC piece of advice. If you're doing this to stop an addiction or a bad habit, you treat it the same way you would treat your addiction or a bad habit if your substance of choice was not available. If you had a cocaine habit, and this is really bad... (laughs) I know where you're going with this, yeah. If you had a cocaine habit and your dealer was out of cocaine you would probably accept the next best thing. If your drink of choice was vodka and the liquor store was out of vodka, you might take gin. Not might, you would. Because you understand that the the end is more important that the mean, than the means with an addiction. Same thing has to happen here. If this prevents addiction and running is not available, you need to grab the next best thing on the shelf. I don't care if that's weightlifting, swimming, power hiking, whatever it is. You find the next best thing, and you use it. It sounds like you're enabling Bracken, but you're right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not comfortable to say that. No, but the analogy is spot on. It's spot on because that's the exact advice I gave him um, when hmm. he had messaged me initially. Um, is you need to switch your, your focus immediately. If you can't do the best thing, which is X, then let's go to Y or Z like right now, which means like stay focused, have a purpose to your day and your workout and, and get your fix that way. 
because it's real easy to feel like the world is ending, uh, especially when you first realize you're injured and things aren't looking so good for the next few weeks or months, um, is, yeah, you, you got to go to the next best thing, whatever that means, whatever your body can tolerate, just stay on track. Literally, if you have a training plan, you stay on it to a T, executed in cross-training modality. You stay in your routine. You do not let it waver, and, and you just have to trust that better days are to come. But throwing your hands up in the air and being like, well, running's the thing that does it for me. Like, I get it. It's the thing that does it for me, too. But I have survived on a salt bike when I've needed to mm -hmm. and other things to get me through. And um, it's exactly right. It's so easy for us to say not in your shoes, looking at the world yes. through your eyes, feeling what you're feeling. So this, it almost feels cheap to give you this answer because when you're living it, it's so freaking hard, right? A quick fix is for you to grab a bottle of booze and just numb out your sorrow. Easy. That's an easy fix temporarily. So I, I don't want to discredit how difficult it is to not make those decisions. But what Bracken said is absolutely correct. Get on it now. Get on it the moment you realize that you might be in trouble. Leave work in the middle of the day and go home and get on the bike. Call in sick so you can figure your crap out. Or go to work because it keeps you on track. I don't know, but yes. Drop everything to make good decisions. And that good decision starts with getting your heart rate up for you from the sounds of it. And most of us listening. That's what I think. Since we had the conversation on air and off air about your own journey with alcohol and running. One phrase I've heard you say so many times is, I know what the easy fix is. I know how to fix this. I woke up feeling, I know how to fix this. There's an easy button. Right? And that's the same thing here. Like You know how to easy fix it, but there's another option. And, and I can't speak to that end, but what I can speak to is the injured athlete end. You can. Where if running is the only thing that does it for you, this forcing yourself to do something out, do something else to try to fix that feeling, that hole in you, is the first step towards a healthier relationship with both sides of the coin. Because then you no longer require one specific thing to block one specific thing. And it, it leads towards a more holistic approach and relationship with everything. As an injured athlete, someone who only wanted to do one thing, every time I embrace a different modality of training... I become a little better at not, <laughs> I can't even say this yet. I get a little better at understanding how to not get injured again in the first place. Mm -hmm. The more tools and skills we have at our disposal, the more we are able to adapt and overcome in the future. So this is a big hurdle. This is also a test, and this might be step one towards not needing one specific fix. I agree with you. I don't know if I have anything more to add to that other than um, just as you did. That's a powerful question. Just as you did, my man, um, you did the right. You reached out to somebody. <laughs> you you opened it up instead of just staying internal. Most That's one of the most important parts, one of the most freeing, helpful things to do. So that would also like, yeah, that's your if that's your tendency, go and tell somebody. I'm assuming you answered that one right away. I did, yeah, yeah. Good. But I saved it because I figured it was worth talking about, yeah. Yeah, and you know it's always one of those situations where there's a lot of people out there thinking that same thing. Got to answer 100%. that one. Yeah. A lot of silent struggles going on out there. Why Training Volume Matters was an amazing episode. I'm going to censor this a little bit because it refers a little bit to another coaching service. But the, the main gist is going to go through. Question, though. Sure. I train with blank. 
So I have my pre-workout and post-workout activation, mobility, and rollouts planned for me. I'm pretty psycho and do everything to the T over 95% of the time and I never miss a workout. So when you said that piece about beholding yourself to the perfect routine, would you recommend sometimes purposely throwing off the pre-run routine for some variability? Since there may be a race where I'm running late to one day and that's just not ideal. So this is someone who works with someone else and everything is pro uh is uh, prescribed for them, including a huge emphasis on pre-workout activation and warm-up. Do would they benefit from throwing themselves off intentionally some days for more adaptability on race day? Should we just go one, two, th- one, two, three, and say our say our one-word answer? <laughs> we could. Well, the answer is yes. Yes, it's an astounding yes. Yeah, Bracken, you've mentioned. Uh, number of times throughout the almost three years we've been doing this about how you had like your I'm running late warm-up routine I can get my full warm-up routine in like you've gone through versions of it because we all know things happen in those early mornings on race days um you talk about how psycho you were back in high school and college like I need to have my orange Gatorade not yellow Gatorade I need to put my left sock on first followed by my right sock and if all that mm-hmm. stuff happens, like the weird compulsive nature things that we can tend to do as endurance athletes, and if all those things align, then I'm finally open to racing well. Then I believe you had a race where nothing really worked and you had a good race still. I forget what it was. But yeah. nonetheless, yes, you are becoming you're becoming a victim of your own habits, and eventually it will bite you in the butt, even from the mental side. Let's forget about the physiological, physical side of performance. Like just mm-hmm. mentally, something is going to throw you off, and that is that is everything in our sport. And so, um, I, heck once in a while, I would do it twice a week. I would practice, (laughs) I would practice it all the time. Um, in, in my opinion and experience with that, because things, uh, and wrenches get thrown in schedules often. And I think you need to be adaptable. And I'm not saying you aren't whoever asked this question. Um, I think that's great. You're being such a good student, but byproduct of that is it may bite you in the butt one day. Um, so the answer is yes. And you know, the answer is yes. That's why you asked us. Yeah. So just saying, yeah, yeah everyone should have the worst case scenario survival handbook so that when things happen and they will, how many races have we been to where registration is not open in time or you're stuck in traffic or the parking situation is a mess or you sleep in or whatever happens, something breaks down and you are on a time crunch and now it's how do I get ready for this? Well, if you already know, listen, I have a five minute warm up routine, a 10, a 15, a 20. I know which pieces I, and it's not about cutting out. It's about what do I retain? What do I switch to when I just need to get the best activation and movement going as possible? I'm going to go. So yeah, super valuable. And it's, it's benefited both of us multiple times. And now I'm going to say something inflammatory. And actually, Alec Blennis just posted about this. He's a, a guest we had on. Another great interview. Go listen to that. <laughs> that that sounds bad. Another great guest. <laughs> Whenever we see another great interview, I feel like we're tooting our own horn. He brought so much to the table. We could have just sat there quietly and he would have given us all this information. But he just posted about the fallacy of the importance of pre-activation in certain parts of warm-ups. And I think it's so true. One of the things I see very often is that when you walk into a gym, there's as much language about the pre-workout protocol as the workout itself written on the whiteboard. 
people and it's it's huge in crossfit boxes it's really big in the functional fitness world but sometimes people not sometimes all the time people are taking way too much time and effort working on things that truly don't matter rather than putting more time into the workout itself if you gave me the option between 10 or 15 minutes of pre-activation exercises and 10 to 15 extra minutes of running, I'm taking the 10 to 15 minutes of running every single time. Because there's a difference between being ready to work out in a safe manner and pre-activation. Pre-activation of muscles is maybe one of the biggest farces in the physical training world that I can think of, and it doesn't matter. And it's either used to fill time in a training session, or it's used when you don't know what else to do and you don't really understand, but I'm just going to keep throwing all these buzzword exercises at you. So not everyone that uses pre-activation and uh, warm-up drills are are pulling the wool out of your eyes, but more often than not, they're not even needed. You can warm up and be safely ready to even compete without doing a single piece of glute activation, and it's just not even necessary, guys. I really liked his post. Um, What is the best way to warm up for a squat? How about you do some squats before you do more squats? How about you do some lighter squats under low, low duress, right? Get all of the muscles firing in the order, in the way that they're going to when they do the heavy work later on. And so what's the best way to warm up for a run? Run. You don't need to, I mean, I could not agree more at the amount of time people waste doing these tertiary things that are so far left field from the activity you're about to do. It's astounding. Now, I think there's a certain athlete and a certain person who has maybe injury tendencies or other things where this makes sense. Of course, there's going to be those athletes. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you're going to deadlift. Guess what? Start deadlifting light. Work your body temp up. Work every, And like that. that's how it works. That's, that's how it works. It's going to be more efficient use of your time as well. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about endurance athletes right now. I'm not talking about sprinters. Correct. The more high intensity your exercise, the more you have to stay on top of your warm-up. For example, if I'm warming up for a marathon, I can be ready to run a marathon in 10 to 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. Best case scenario. I could be ready in four minutes if I had to be. If I'm warming up to run a 400-meter dash, you got to give me at least 35 minutes before I feel comfortable doing it. Before most races I ever run, I do a 30 to 40-minute warm-up. But I could get by on 10 to 12 minutes just fine. And I've gotten by on five. So it's about doing whatever's needed to be able to perform your chosen activity safely and at max capacity. And anything beyond that is really just fluff. And if you love the fluff, keep doing it. If you think it helps keep you healthy, keep doing it. That's fine, but you don't need it. I'm really glad you said that about like basically like anaerobic athletes versus aerobic athletes. People think like, but even like a squat, like I would argue, like we're not trying to, it's not like an explosive movement. Like you can work into a heavy squat by simply squatting. But when you are really propelling yourself through space, then I agree with you a hundred percent about dynamics being important because the snap of those tendons and ligaments start firing very quickly. And that's where you can risk injury. And also you want to be ready to perform, but it's not for probably most 99% 99% of the people listening to this. You don't pull a hamstring at mile two of a 5K. If you're going to pull it, it's 
your first step off the line. Right. So you need to be warmed up enough to take that first step off the line, and you need to have your body loose enough to full range of motion to be able to run your biggest stride you're going to use, and you need to have your cardiovascular system warmed up to the point that it's not ramping up and revving up trying to get used to 5K effort. That's it. If those three things are checked, whether that happens in six minutes or 60 minutes, you're ready to rock. Yep. Okay. Um, Next question. Who asked the last one? Was it you or me? It was you. It was me. I guess I'm not going to say this person's name either because I don't know if they want me to. Um, This is email. Oh, by the way, it starts. Was thinking the other day about a podcast question topic. Please don't read this verbatim. Oh, whoops. I already started reading it verbatim. (laughs) Uh, There's nothing wrong with reading this verbatim since I'm not saying who this is. Um, Interested to hear what you guys have learned from coaching OCR. What works, what doesn't? How does coaching such a range of disciplines, sprint versus ultras, etc., work? Is it hard? What are some of your biggest wins with coaching? Kind of a recap of how it all is going for you guys behind the scenes with your professional growth game in the sport, etc. I was just curious. This should just be a training Tuesday. I like the question. Why don't we actually? Why don't we actually why don't we save this one? Thank you for this question. You know who you are. Um, I think actually we could we could draw that one out big time. In, in a good way, in the sense where we wouldn't do it justice. Why don't I save that? I'm going to save that one. We'll move to we'll move to the next yeah. one. How about that? Let's do it. Okay, this is uh, from one of my athletes, Andrew Lorenzo. Um, I don't know where this question starts, so I'm just going to start in the middle. Uh, Andrew Lorenzo, over the big pond, big, big couple ponds in Australia. But I was thinking to <laughs> my easy... Re- the big pond. What? <laughs> the big ponds right how many ponds yeah i just think england when i hear over the big pond yeah yeah so well so do i think that's the proper term i use it wrong that's good uh but i was thinking today my easy recovery pace hasn't gotten any faster since uh starting six months ago i know that's not a long time in the grand scheme of things and i know i mentioned this before but what does that mean if anything for example if my slower pace isn't getting faster in correlation to my recovery Heart rate, does that mean I've hit some kind of ceiling somewhere? Does that affect how fast I can get when I'm working hard? Or does it mean that I will be more efficient at working harder at a higher heart rate? As in, if 165 was my threshold for, say, 60 minutes, does that then mean that one day my heart rate will be able to sustain 175 at a faster pace for that same 60 minutes? Does that all make sense? Not really, but kind of. So some background on this athlete. Um is he has progressed very nicely as in we've taken dozens of minutes off his marathon. He's consistently PR in his 5k time trials. I just had him do a 10k time trial and he PR'd by a smashed it. So his top end metrics he's sending me are absolutely getting better with his workouts, with his Mm -hmm. time trials. Like he is objectively getting faster. He also sent this, um, you know, and part of this answer for him is sent this in November is, it's summer there and it's hot. And so your metrics are going to be very much. Of, and so right away I was like, well, like right now it's, it's 95 degrees there. Like your heart rate's going to be elevated, of course. Um, so that's just like a sidebar to it, but he's progressing very nicely, but his recovery pacing versus heart rate really hasn't gone anywhere. We will say in general, he has a few days here and there. Where he's like, my heart rate is really low today, but in general, um, the thing with athletes and with him, and maybe this will relate to some of you listening, is we have progressed 
with volume and intensity for these six months. Like he is doing more. He is like, I'm throwing him bigger workouts. The stimulus is big and we progressed with that progression. If you are in a progression yourself also comes fatigue. And a lot of times that song and dance is a really nice quality session followed by a body that is beat to crap in which you might see an elevated heart rate or a tendency for your recovery pacing to be slower the next day as you charge up for your next big effort and recover from your previous. And so because the stimulus is so big with him and it's it's been increasing and um, a lot of times recovery days are just down days, man. Like they're just you're just in the dirt. Your body's, you know, in recovery mode. And a lot of times that comes with slower pacing and elevated heart rate. And so I had a question from a different athlete about this today, literally today in my email. And um, a lot of times we get too caught up on the side of the uh, the side of the coin that matters the least, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, we're worrying about the dull end of the spear instead of the point. We're worrying about the handle of the spear instead of the pointy end. And so, notable, yes, take it for a win when you go for a recovery run and you're like, wow, my heart rate's low at pacing today. Like, just be like, oh, that's a good sign. It's not going to continue progressively like in a trend like that, especially if you're in a heavy training pattern, in my opinion. Uh, I can see you want to jump in. I think I've said said what I want to say there. Oh, I'm just shifting in my seat, getting a little stiff up here. Yeah. Did a quality session and a lift yesterday, so my rear chain's a little fatigued here, Kirk. I'm not in stool sitting shape right now. Yeah, it's a it's a peak fitness sort of thing right there. Yeah. Well, you're very right. And in uh, what I like most, uh, two things. You talked about that give and take. When you're just running easy work and building base, so to speak. You can look at your average pace per week and watch improvement. Yep. But when you add stimulus in, that goes up and your your recovery and easy pace has to drop to compensate with the fatigue. And so we're re- yeah, like you said you're looking at the wrong metric because we sometimes we forget to look at what the purpose of the run is. And people ask all the time, what's a good goal to shoot for on my easy runs? And the answer is easy. What's a good goal to shoot for on my recovery runs? The answer is recovery. Uh, Pace does not enter into the equation if you're doing quality work. It just doesn't. And so the purpose of easy and recovery is to go easy and to recover. Recover is simply to recover actively. And you can do a little bit of the the aerobic development platform, which people are looking for. Mitochondria, capillary bed density, and red blood cell development. Those are the three big inner workings that you get outside of just becoming better at running. And so that doesn't happen at a prescribed pace. That happens once you get past 20 to 30 minutes of work, you start really reaping the benefit of those things happening. And so if that can happen at nine minute pace or 11 minute pace, it doesn't matter if you get slower or don't get faster because you're still getting those benefits. The metrics you want to track are the quality days. If your quality days go up and down on days, <laughs> I'm shooting for seven minute pace. Some days I'm seven, some days I'm nine. That's disconcerting. They need to stay consistent or get better. Whereas the easy days, they can fluctuate all over the place as long as your quality right. days stay consistent. So if you're improving anywhere, you're improving. Yep. As long as you're not seeing huge drawbacks everywhere else. So we've had a bunch of really intelligent guests who've come on here. And the common thread is, why are you doing your workout? What's its purpose? And just remind yourself that the purpose of your recovery and easy days are not to hit a pace. They're to hit an effort and a purpose. You nailed it. Kirk, I would say, I would say that over the course of a training block, my average run pace 
on all my easing and recovery days drops. It gets slower. As the season goes on, I actually get slower on my easy days. And it's a, probably a pretty trackable trend downwards. As I get more fit, I generally run a little slower. Especially the more I race and the more I'm yep. swinging big on workouts. Like the more I race, the slower I run outside of anything quality for sure. Without question. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, I know he's not consumed with worrying about his easy run metrics. It's just more like, yeah, exactly what you said. They're going to ebb and flow up and down. Some days you're going to be a little less fatigued than others and metrics are going to look good. And some days they're going to look like crap. And that is exactly normal. So good answer, Bracken. I see you got another one you're queuing up and I'm going to cut us off in 20 minutes. Is that fair? We I have think 20 so. minutes only because I haven't eaten Oof. really any thing of substance rushing to this pot and i'm i'm you know getting to that point so continue oh we just knocked the shoe down which one i will not continue without this rc elite one back on the shelf Puma. it's okay baby it's okay all right oh we got a sister question here Ayo. this can be quick then about three runs per week i try to hold a pace for a decent run say seven miles I notice if I try to peg a pace, say 745, my heart rate is 150 the first mile, 160 the second, 165 the third, 170 the fourth, and then sits 75 to 80 for the last three. My question is, do you consider that junk miles due to the inconsistent heart rate? Is this being out of shape? Am I running too fast for me? Threshold? Question mark. In my mind, I had pretty decent success with this style, but never really knew if you would say to work on getting my heart rate up quicker so I can get to the 170s faster. So this gentleman seems to be worried about uh, his heart rate change throughout the runs when he's trying to hold a specific pace. Yeah, I just want like one follow-up question if I could to this to provide some What are the other days? Well, what are the other days and why are you doing like what's the purpose of this? Is is it like a fitness check? Is it a considered a quality day in your eyes? Is this you're doing this every other day? Yeah, there's like so many other things. Because that's that's a fair workout. You could consider that some sort of I mean, you're gonna spend a lot of time in threshold with that workout, like somewhere in there before you breach it, obviously, it sounds like. But God, I just Max Heart rate is one ninety five. I missed that part. He's getting up to one seventy five, one eighty. Why don't you start? Let me think on it because it's like I don't want to answer it because I don't have enough info. But yeah, I, I will. I just yeah. why don't you start? I'm going to answer the heart rate question. I'm going to avoid the purpose of the run. I'm going to avoid if the pacing or if is this threshold, is this steady state? Like, is this is this easy? I, I'm going to avoid all that and go to the question is, is this junk miles due to the inconsistent heart rate? And I actually answered this gentleman off off air but the heart rate went 150 160 165 170 175 180 and my response is that's not inconsistent that's heart rate ramp up yeah that's starting at a pace right off the gun and holding it and your heart rate ramps over time as your oxygen uh, intake and expenditure rises as your body heat rises as all the processes inside your body which are having to happen to make this pace happen as that happens, your heart rate rises. I would actually say that's incredibly consistent of a ramp up. Mm-hmm. When we talk about doing a threshold run, it's not like I start my first mile, boom, I'm at 170 and it sits there the entire time at this exact pace. 
You either have to ramp up to 170 and hold there, or you have to adjust your pace to stay at your heart rate zone. Mm-hmm. So no, there's nothing inappropriate about this. Isn't consider inconsistent. Inconsistent would be 150, 175, 160, 185, 165. That's inconsistent. This is a ramp up, which is entirely appropriate and is what most of your quality sessions look like right now, Kirk. I missed that last question there. I was adjusting my headphones. I said, and it's what most of your quality sessions look like right now. Your heart rate ramps up and eventually you reach to that point where you just plateau or you hold or you back off. Or sometimes you hammer home. Always hammer home. Always. Um, Yeah, I like pretty graphs. And that sounds like a really pretty graph if you start looking at the heart rate graph. You can have two things. You can have a pace progression run or you can have a heart rate progression run irrelevant of either like the fact is is that you're working harder as the effort continues and you're going to spend a good bit of time of that just under threshold to start and then you're going to enter this threshold abyss which might be a 10 beat per minute range let's just say or whatever the frick it is for you and you're going to get a lot of benefit out of that and then at some point you're sounds like you're breaching this and getting into vo2 max territory in which is when i pull the plug on these type of workouts if i'm not trying to like set myself too far back Mm-hmm. Um, you obviously have to know your metrics there. Like a lot of times I'll do an incline progression run on the treadmill and I will go until my heart rate breaks 180 and then I pull the plug. And as unscientific as that sounds, that also meant I spent 30 minutes between 165 and 175, which is right where I, let's say, wanted to be, which is a yep. great benefit. And so for, for, for one, that is a quality day. Whoever's asking this, like without question, that is a high quality day if your heart rate's getting up that high and staying there so absolutely treat it like that uh whatever you're doing you need to recover after that workout with heart rate stimulus like that especially holding 175 to 180 for three four miles like you just went to the well dude or ma'am like now you're like chill so i don't know how you're listing that out maybe this might be the most helpful thing you need to hear but that absolutely is a quality day so um which requires recovery that's all i really want to say right now about that yeah i'm happy there too why don't you put one in the chamber and let it fly? Okay, cool. See Lister. Hi, Kirk and Bracken. Chris from England here. Love the running public pod and it's like behind a shadow. I can do this. And has helped me so much to focus my training in the right direction. Now, this question is from over the big pond, Bracken, the actual big pond. Yes, it is. Question for your next Q&A, please. I feel a little heavy and sluggish when I run as I'm carrying about around 16 extra pounds of fat above my ideal weight. Easy, right? Cardio and calorie deficit. However, I'm also trying to increase my strength and muscle mass. This requires food, calories. Are these two aims mutually exclusive? And if not, how do I square that particular circle? How do I slim down while feeding muscle growth? Thank you, guys. Chris. It's your wheelhouse, baby. This is yours. Oh, I thought you'd just—I thought you'd tee me up or something. I'm—I just did. Take it. You're teed up. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Uh, well, one fuels the other. Um, increased muscle mass absolutely increases bas- basal metabolic rate, which absolutely increases caloric burn, which absolutely will increase your rate of fat loss. So these both should work together. Now you said you carry an extra 16 pounds of fat that you want to get rid of. You've determined it's fat, not muscle. Um, so they both should be, you can absolutely gain or maintain muscle at the very least while losing fat. Um, now you can't have everything at once. Like you can't be 
the strongest you've ever been while in a caloric deficit. But what I suggest doing is maintaining as much strength as you can. And yes, you can get stronger without gaining muscle size. Your muscles become more effective at contracting. They become more efficient at movements. And you could go from a 200-pound deadlift to a 250-pound deadlift all while you're losing 15 pounds. Like I see people do it all the time. They get stronger and lighter at the exact same time. So you stay very purposeful with your strength training, but you do allow that caloric deficit to be part of your approach. And what you'll find is that whenever you reach a phase in which you're like, you know what, I'm as lean as I want to be, you can then go and build from a really good platform because you stayed on top of your power and strength work the entire time. Um, But you can't have your cake and eat it too in the sense in which if you want to get faster and you believe losing these 16 pounds are important for that, that is going to move the needle more for you than getting super strong right now. So maintain all that muscle mass. You'll probably still get a little stronger, even though you're losing overall weight. Um, But eventually you'll hit a point in which you can then reverse that curve or that trend, which means I'm lean. I'm where I want to be. Most people never feel like they get there, right? It's like kind of a hard attainable thing. And then Mm -hmm. you can start adding in more calories and then really start putting on that muscle. But I see it time and time again that people get stronger well in a caloric deficit if they're very purposeful with their strength work. My recommendation is go very heavy. I would ditch the high rep schemes, uh, at least for a good portion of your work. And I just put your nervous system under heavy load. So it keeps as much power as possible. Um, I don't know. It was a little blurry there, but I think I got my point across. No, you're good. So I'll just speak to the, the mental part of this. You open by saying you feel sluggish when you run. Well, if your goal is to put on more muscle mass and get stronger or to lose 16 pounds or do both concurrently, any of those three options, you're going to continue to feel crappy on your runs. So just go in knowing that if you're trying to get, when I try to put on power before a hybrid event, I feel worse when I run. If I try to lose weight, I feel worse when I run. It's just the way this thing works. If you have a caloric deficit, you're going to feel crappy when you work out most of the time and probably during the day. So know that fixing any one of these three, and I say that in quotes, fixing since this is your goal and you want to fix something or improve it, will not make you feel better right away. Second thing is, uh, when you take off a big puffy winter coat, you see what you're really wearing underneath. And sometimes you look at someone and they're like, yeah, they look fit. And then they, they pop off their jacket. You're like, oh, they're jacked. So keep in mind that you maybe don't need to try to lose weight and gain mass at once. You might take your jacket off and realize, oh man, I'm kind of kind of cut underneath this thing. So I would just say focus on one piece, do it right, and then pivot. Could not agree more. I'm glad you said that. Go after one hard instead of muddying the waters. But but that also means like you need to stay on top of your strength work to keep your metabolic fire burning and setting yourself yes. up for future success. But understand it may put a slight cap on your strength gains at the moment, but you need to do one thing at a time. That will be your quickest way to get to the end goal. Yeah. And I think that's important to remember is that if you're, you, uh, again, we're using your words. If you have 16 extra pounds of fat on your body and you acknowledge that you want to get stronger and your running doesn't feel great, then chances are anyone in this situation isn't working at peak efficiency in terms of training. Mm-hmm. So at that point, if you're not doing a couple things at their best, you can improve all of them at the same time without having to really focus on one. You can try just to lose a little bit of weight and your lifts are going to get better because you're just lifting more. Or you can try to lift more. You're going to lose a little weight just because you're working out more. So if you're not at peak athletic performance, you can improve things just by 
spending a little bit of time doing them because you're at that easy gain level. Yep, I agree. Oh, this is another warm-up question, but it's different. Is a warm-up run beneficial or detrimental when you are worried about muscle cramping in your legs? Context, I've twice done a trail half marathon that had 4,000 feet of gain and loss. The first time I really was undertrained and cramped at mile 10. The second time I was more prepared but still almost cramped towards the end. I didn't do a warm-up run either time for fear that my muscles only had X amount of damage they could take before giving out. And I didn't want to use any of that up on a warm-up run. Is this thinking wrong? And yes, I know you should just be trained enough to do a proper warm-up, but I'm curious your thoughts on this. This is a good question. This happens all the time. Yeah. That was the next question in my chamber too. So we had the same one screenshot. Ooh, nice. That's the first time that's happened today. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question because it's like a predicament in which I think a lot of people find themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in this situation, and I feel like this person's pretty in touch with themselves, like what should happen, what shouldn't, how this yeah. really should be going, but this isn't their situation. They're realizing that they, you know, two races they've cramped. Um, I'm going to agree with his thought process on this, that mm-hmm. run time on feet probably isn't going to be your best friend before the race starts. And you're going to be one of those who is best off warming up with dynamics, plyos, running through some range of motion uh, type work, uh, wearing a couple extra layers to get a sweat going while doing all of that, but not running maybe but to the porta potty and back once or twice before the race starts. Um, you're right. It's a cumulative damage from all the extra work. And I would say only because this is a, if you're cramping in a half an hour race or a 60 minute race, different story. Absolutely unacceptable to not get a thorough warm up in. We're going to figure this out. But when you're talking long races, um, yeah, skip the running and do 10 minutes of moving your body with purpose. That is non running. Uh, come up with a good routine there and get a sweat going in another way. And your body will be ready to start at that sort of pacing for that duration. So um, that's what I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, the longer the race, the less you need to spend any amount of time running. I And I watched, my brother did this with me, this first Spartan race he ever did. Uh, he stopped a half mile into our warm-up. He said, I'm just going to go back. I'm going to fall apart either way today. I don't have this type of running in my legs right now. <laughs> I said, I respect that. Go ahead, walk back. Mm-hmm. It's real. And, and I my first... Uh, my first real trail race, real trail race was a 21 miler and I warmed up too much. I warmed up like I was warming up for any other race I'd ever done. I shortened my jog a little bit. The second time I did that race, I didn't run a step beforehand because I was going to run the first hour and a half of this at my aerobic threshold, which you can really, with some dynamic work, can roll. I, I might have done one stride just to make sure my shoes were laced how I wanted them to be laced. That was it. Mm. And I had a much better day. I was going to have two and a half hours of running on this technical trail, no matter what. I'm not taking out so fast that I need to worry about my heart rate skyrocketing and my body not being able to to deal with it. So if you're, if yeah, like you said, if you're worried about cramping in a long race, you're not going to perform any worse by not running. Do some high knees, do some butt kicks, stretch out your hips and go out there and ease into the race. Although after your big warm up, I'm sure you felt real good for a while until you didn't. Yeah. And you know what it led me to do? Hmm, Cramp. (laughs) 
got out too hot. Yeah, all right. Got out too hot as well, yeah. Let's do uh let's do just one last question. I know we're not quite to two hours, which we like to hit, but um I'm calling us off after this one. Is that fair? If you're fading, you're fading. Well, I did a dumb thing. I did a seventy minute workout, a hybrid run lift session, and then I was running behind too, so I got right to this and all I grabbed was like a stack of Pringles, which are always in my house. But anyways, I'm 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 fading. I I texted you right before this. I said, sorry, I'm gonna be five minutes late, and it's cause I was stuffing my face. Oh, I see I didn't do you that. You should have done that. Last one. Uh from Excel and Thrive says Hey guys, really enjoyed your episode on treadmill training in the winter. Would love if you could discuss model recommendations. I'm in the market for a new one and would love some ideas. Thanks. Well, full stop. That's it. Okay. We have talked about this in the episode about building your own gym. So I think we should be able to hit this pretty quickly. Yep. I see there are three types of treadmills someone could possibly want. Uh, One is an incline trainer. One is just a regular treadmill that does your normal stuff. And that the variation there could be if you wanted it to go faster or slower. And then the third would be a manual treadmill, a curved treadmill. And depending on that, then your choices get really easy. If you want an incline trainer, you go with Nordic Track. They have the best uh, bang for your buck and you can purchase extra warranties. And their incline trainers have gotten much more bulletproof over the years. I'm in the midst of an extra four years of warranty I tacked on, and I'm afraid I'm not going to break this thing in time. So that's your number one for incline. For flat, you can still go with Nordic Track from a big box store because you can get great warranties. Otherwise, Sol, S-O-L-E, they make their big box treadmills, and they're probably the best bang for your buck there. And then for curved treadmills, it's whichever one you can find or afford. They're all pretty equivalent. Uh, Assault treadmill, uh, Assault Runners, the treads rated for 150,000 miles. Trueform is more expensive. Their frame and treadmill is guaranteed for life. Uh, You really can't go wrong with those, but it's just determining which one you want. Yeah, I don't even really need to add to that other than um, if you have races which require mountains and running up and downhill, whether you live in the mountains or not, I think uh, the Nordic Track Incline Trainer is a must. So if you're one who's like, yeah, I'm going to race trail races that have steep inclines often or big climbs, like there's a no-brainer. If you have to prioritize, the Nordic Track should come first. It's not great for fast, fat, uh, fast flat running, but you can put the incline at 3 or 6%, and it, and it basically reduces all the play in the belt, and then it's very similar to flat speed running on any other treadmill. Not perfect because it's flat game. There's too much play in that belt. But I think there's a no-brainer. You get an incline trainer if you are chasing vert in races. Yes. So that's your first qualifier. From there, if you're not, I wouldn't recommend the Nordic Track. I would then go to a traditional treadmill like you recommended, like a Sol or something, that caps at 15% incline, whereas the Nordic Track goes all the way up to 40% incline. And I would just get a nice quality machine that you can run flat and fast on without playing the belt, which most of those do. Um That'd be my first qualifier, really. Like, which side do I want? You have the Nordic Track side, the Incline Trainer, or the other options, which are I plan to do flat, fast work on it exclusively. I don't care about climbing. So that's all I would say is just make sure to, like, help you decide what's right for you is to just ask yourself that question. Yep. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, are we going to cut it off? We I still have a few questions in here, but I got seven. How many do you have? But I just feel like Seven. 
Let's see, I have one, two, six, seven as well. That's a whole nother episode, Kirk. Yeah, maybe do back to backs and clean them up. We just need to we need to get these answers out there to the good people. We could do that. We'll see what we do. Otherwise they can get their answer in three months next time. <laughs> wah wah. Or we could go back to answering two questions to start every episode for the next seven episodes. Yeah, we gotta figure that out. What do you do for Christmas, Bracken, before we wrap this up? Merry Christmas, by the way. Thank you. You as well, Kirk. Uh, we do Christmas Eve next door at my family's house, and we do Christmas Day out in Lake Geneva at her family's house. Nice. Busy little weekend. Yeah. We are, uh, we're are we going up to International Falls, which is on the Canadian border. Uh, <laughs> Just in time for this Arctic family. cold wave. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, I think like if I pull up my weather app right now, it's, it is 147 in the afternoon, and it's negative 5 out. At 147, with the wind chill, it is negative 27 right now outside. In fact, this may be the first week, Bracken, I run exclusively on my treadmill. I've never done it in my life, but because of the way this works, like I don't want to go out in negative 27 with 17-mile-an-hour winds or whatever it is and try to do anything productive. So it's like I may go five for five this week. And you know what? If some of you are out there dealing with that too, it's okay. Just get outside the next chance you can where you're not going to potentially harm yourself. I think in International Falls, it's going to be, I don't know, like negative 57 with the wind chill when we're up there, almost breaching negative 60. We're going to bring extra clothes in the car in case it breaks down. Like, you need to survive. That's just dumb. Out there. <laughs> negative 60. Uh, Anyways, okay, that's all we're doing. Be great. I thought we were cold till I heard that. Well, it is cold. We are cold. Tomorrow, we don't get above zero till 1 p.m., but... That's practically swimsuit season up there. Is that what it says? Huh. The high is negative four today, where we are. <laughs> Our high is seven, I think, tomorrow. All right. We're 11 right now, so it's it was 21 this morning when I woke up, and it's down to 11 now, so <laughs> that's not how days are supposed Always to go. dropping. Not good. Yeah, all I want for Christmas from our listeners is um, your continued support and listenership, and uh, if you haven't written a, a review or left us a rating... That'd be the best dang gift you could possibly leave us. We're looking to really grow this thing, and we have some fun plans coming up in the new year, which mm-hmm. we're going to slowly start launching for you guys. But um, we're making a big push to spread the word to more people. We're really committing to the podcast and you guys moving forward in 2023. Um, and you, like I said, I'm not going to give it all away now. You'll see as we launch what's coming up. But uh, ratings and reviews go a really long ways as well as downloads as far as new listeners finding us and giving us a try. So uh, please do that if you have a free moment. That'd be great. Put a bow tie on it. That's a great request. Yeah. Since you took that, I'm going to request a year of racing. That's all. I just want to be able to make it to the start line (laughs) and then, God willing, to the finish line in all the seasons of 2023. That's a reasonable request as well. Um, still got some merch left. Our hats have been going fast, our stocking caps. So don't forget they're up on the website. Go buy them if you want. Some of the shirt sizes are out and some have very limited quantities left. So if you thought about buying a shirt, uh, you might be in just the nick of time unless you want like a large in olive green or something like that. So go take a look too. If you got some, some Christmas cash to spend. That's right. Now we're done self-promoting. Are we done self-promoting? Yeah. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Enjoy the new year. We'll see you once before then. But I just want you to know we appreciate spending our year with you. 
and vice versa. It makes our life a lot, lot, lot more fulfilled. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, guys. It's been nice to have uh, this purpose. Feeling fulfilled. Let's quit getting mushy. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Whatever you sell. You filthy animals. Thank you.